Friends, what a great morning it's been. Can we praise God already for just the sign? All right, come on. All right, let's stop. All right. So we just had like an amazing time. See, you didn't get to experience the 9 a.m. See, we got more people that got baptized at the 9 a.m. So can we just praise God that in the midst of a physical storm, we just can be here today and to see what God is doing. Man, it's great to have you here, whether you're a first-time guest or a member of this church. Um, I know many, uh, unfortunately, cannot gather together and worship God today. And, uh, and so as Emily prayed, we pray for our friends and those that I know we have family and many of you have friends and all of us have people on the coast that um, are just enduring the storm. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing how we as a church can help and what ways we can do that. And so even as we celebrate today and are able to gather to, to, together today, we also don't forget those who don't have it as well as us today and the things that they are going through. And I know that touches many, if not all of us, this morning through friends and family. But I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1. And we are kicking off a series that uh, we've entitled Anchored. And here's what we mean by that. Here's what we're going after as we walk through this book of Philippians for 10 weeks is this. What does it look like to find stability in the midst of rough waters? Because I don't know who you, what you're going through this morning. I, I'm familiar with some as I look out across this audience, but obviously I can't know what every person is going through in the audience today. But here's what I do know, and I'm not naive enough to think this way, that there aren't people that have just come out of rough waters. There's people right now in the midst of rough waters. And here's what I know, that rough waters will come because that is life. And what we're going to see in this book, in the book of Philippians, is that God is going to instruct us on what it looks like to find stability even when we're experiencing things that would cause us to feel unstable, rough waters, those things in life that we go through that we don't ask for, that we don't hope for, but that we do go through. And so before we get into this passage of Scripture, I think it's always good when you're walking through a particular book or a letter to a specific church, this to Philippi, that we kind of understand the context in which this letter is being written. And so I think it's important that we understand how did the church at Philippi even start? This church particularly started in a basement 14 years ago. Every church has a story in how it started. So how did the church at Philippi start? See, it was started through the ministry of Paul. Paul is the one that wrote the letter to the Philippians that we're going to walk through for the next 10 weeks. And he also is the one that started this church. And it's interesting that if you go to Acts 16, you see Paul's entourage. You see Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. He's with Paul. You see Silas. You see Timothy. Timothy being Saul's protege. And so they're all in the city of Philippi, and they're looking for a synagogue to preach the gospel because that's what they would do. They would go to the place that they know people would gather to worship, and they would preach the good news of Jesus Christ. But as they're going to look for this synagogue, they come across this literally women's Bible study. And this Bible study is being led by a woman named Lydia. 
Now, here's what you need to understand about Lydia. Lydia is from Thyatira, which was another metropolitan city. That's where she was from, but she has a home in Philippi. And what we're told in Acts 16 is that she's a woman who has is a maker of fabric and different things like that. So when we understand that Thyatira was a metropolitan city and Philippi was a metropolitan city and she had two homes, we can pretty much gather like we could today. Like if you have two homes, you're probably doing fairly well. And so for her, having a home in two metropolitan areas and also basically having her own, to put it in our terms today, her own clothing line, she was a fashionista. She would have been like a CEO of her own clothing company in today's terms. And so if we were to put it in today's terms, it would be like this. She has a home in LA and she's got a home in New York. She's that type of lady. She's someone who is wealthy, who is influential. And Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy run into her and she has these women together and they're studying the scriptures. And Paul meets her answers her questions. She comes to faith in Jesus Christ and not only her, but her entire household and they were baptized just like we got to celebrate just a few moments ago. And so Lydia, this fashionista, this very wealthy woman, an influential woman, is the first convert in the start of the church at Philippi. Then you go later down in Acts 16 and you find the complete contrast to Lydia. See, then Paul runs into this slave girl who's possessed with a demon and this slave girl would tell the fortunes of others that would come and Paul meets her and casts out that demon and shares with her the gospel of Jesus Christ and she comes to faith in Jesus Christ. So she's the second convert. So you have this fashionista CEO of her own company and then you have this demonic slave girl that comes to Jesus Christ. And then the third convert to the start at church at Philippi was the Philippian jailer because that threw Paul and Silas in jail. And so there they are in jail. And we know if some of us know the story in Acts 16, this big earthquake happens and all the jail cells are opened wide and the the prison guard is, is about to commit suicide because he knows if he allows prisoners to escape, his life is taken from him. So he's figuring, I might as well just do it myself. And Paul stops and says, wait a minute, none of us have escaped. And Paul ends up leading that Philippian jailer to the Lord. That's how the church at Philippi started. And so when we look at this letter now, most people believe it was written around AD 60 to 62 when Paul was in his first imprisonment in Rome. In fact, this is what happened to Paul, right? Before he writes this letter and what led him into prison. You see, Paul just survived a perilous storm on the Mediterranean Sea. He'd been deserted by most of his friends. And even the Christian leaders of the day that Paul knew were turning on Paul and trying to get him more in trouble with the Roman government. And Paul's sitting there in prison, not knowing if he's going to be executed or not. Those are the circumstances that Paul is is experiencing as he writes this letter to this particular church in Philippi. Now, here's something that's interesting about this letter. 
is more than any other letter, more than any other book that we find in the Bible, Philippians speaks more to joy and how to experience it than any other book in the Bible. 16 times in this short little book of four chapters, we're told about joy. Now, if we remember the context that I just gave you and we think about Paul and he's in a Roman prison and he's for sure not getting three meals a day with direct TV and a weight room and and all this other type of stuff, he's not experiencing that. He has every reason humanly possible to be void of joy. But he's not. And so as we walk through this book, what we need to see or better yet, what God wants us to see is how do you and I possess the ability to have stability in the midst of rough waters? Because in the book of Philippians, what it describes in Philippians, what Paul is describing is really what spiritual maturity looks like in our walk with the Lord. How do we know if we're growing in our walk with the Lord? And Philippians is going to tell us. Because what I've found is those that are experiencing stability in the midst of rough waters are showing their maturity in their walk with the Lord. Here's something I want you to understand and I want you to get to this morning. Is that spiritual maturity is not defined solely by what you know. Some of you are like, man, I can list every book of the Bible. Man, I got tons of passages of Scripture memorized. Man, I never, never miss a week of church. Man, I lead a life group, whatever it may be. And those are awesome things that all of us ought to be striving after. But my spiritual maturity is not solely determined by what I know. Rather, my spiritual maturity and how I can know I'm growing in my walk with the Lord is when I am taking what I know and applying it to what I am experiencing. Because when I'm taking what I know and applying it to what I experience, then I am seeing that, man, I am growing, I'm maturing in my walk with the Lord because that's what we're going to see Paul exemplify through his life. And there's people peppered all over this room this morning that I've seen your spiritual maturity. Because even in the midst of rough waters, there's a stability that can't be humanly explained that you're experiencing, that I've seen in you, that others have seen in you. And that's what we're striving after in our walk with the Lord. You know, as I thought about this series and this message today in Philippians 1, and I promise you we'll get there. I'm just setting up the series here. I thought about back in January, you're going to feel really sorry for me when I tell you this. So back in January of this past year, we got invited to to go on this boat and to island hop through the BVIs. And right, you're feeling really sorry for me, aren't you? Yeah, I thought so. And so obviously I had to pray about that for probably one second, right? And so Lori and I were like, man, that's so awesome, like, like, we, first of all, we'd never be able to do this. And so we were so excited about that. But then my mind started to think like, what's the boat going to look like? Seven days? Am I going to get seasick? Like, 
All of a sudden, my mind went from the amazingness of, the, of, of thinking about that to the what-ifs of what could happen. And so there's a picture of the boat there you see on the screen. Just to clarify, ours is to the right. We were not, we, we were not on the yacht. We were on, we were on that boat. And, and he, but here's what I found was interesting. Like some of you are expecting me to give you this massive story about how I got sick and threw my guts up for seven days. That did not happen by God's grace. But here's why. Because what I was most worried about is when it was time to sleep, would we literally be like feeling like people who had had too much to drink and be all over the place all night long and not be able to see the horizon because the, it was dark and the reality was it wasn't, wasn't like that. And here's why, because every time we came to a place where we docked for the evening, I thought it was so interesting that the people running the ship, what they would do is they would drop anchor and connect to these things called moorings that were literally anchored down into the bed of the ocean in which we were staying. And they not only anchored to one, but they actually anchored to three. So what was amazing was, is even though the waves could be moving, the boat stayed fairly still. Why? Because it was anchored in something that did not move. And it made me think about the series. It made me think about life. And how so often I want to drop anchor in the things that shift rather than dropping my anchor in the one thing that will never move, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, where Jesus says, there's a wise man and there's a foolish man. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. And the same rain and the same floods and the same wind come, but the outcome is completely different because one person's built on the rock while the other person's built on the sand. See, The title of the message this morning that I want us to get as we look at Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11 is this, drop your anchor. Drop it, but drop it in the things that won't move. Drop it in the person, Jesus Christ, and the things that he has given us that won't move. And that's what I want to do this morning. In these 11 verses, I'm going to show you three things that we can drop our anchor in so that we can experience stability in the midst of rough waters. And the first one is found in verses 1 through 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Look at what it says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. I want to stop right there at verse 1 because there's an interesting phrase that Paul uses to describe himself that you may think is kind of strange, If you're not super familiar with the scriptures, he describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. See, here's the first thing that I want us to understand that we are given by God so that we can experience stability in the midst of rough waters. Number one, we are given assistance to deal with the anxiety. Because what I've found in my life is depending on where I'm dropping anchor depends on the level of anxiety that I experience. See, if I'm dropping my anchor into sand, so to speak, to use Jesus' words in Matthew 7, things that shift, that are here today and gone tomorrow, I find that my anxiety level rises. But what Paul does here in the midst of a stinky, smelly, dark prison 
that none of us would imagine to ever be in our entire lives. Paul Paul has experienced this tremendous stability. Why? Because he understands the assistance that he's been given by Almighty God to deal with the anxieties of life. And what I think is interesting is the first thing that he describes himself as is a servant of Jesus Christ. See, what you need to understand in this time period is you could be a servant or a slave three different ways. You could be a slave because you were conquested by another army. And so that would put you into slavery. You could also experience slavery. You were born into it. In other words, your mother or your father were slaves, were servants, so therefore, by default, you were. Or there's a third way that you could experience servanthood or slavery, and that would be that it would be because of debt. Like what would oftentimes happen in this time period is people would willingly put themselves into servitude to pay back a debt that they could not afford, that they had accumulated. And so themselves or their children would be put into servanthood to pay off that debt. See, there was three ways. And what I think is interesting is the the Bible refers to how before we come to Jesus Christ, we're all slaves to sin. I mean, David refers to it in Psalm 51. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born into sin. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. See, every one of us are sinners by nature. We're all slaves to sin. Paul understood that. And while oftentimes that can be counterintuitive to what we're told in society that we need to think the best of ourselves, the reality is, is I don't know about you, but I'm not dialing up my doctor just to go pay him a visit because I'm feeling fantastic. Like, I know we got doctors in this room and I love you to death and, and I would visit you because I know you, but I'm not dialing up some doctor that I don't know who's who I'm not friends with right now, to just go pay him a visit and say, hey, you want to do lunch? Why? We don't go to our doctor when we're well. We go to our doctor when we realize we're sick. And that's true of every one of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's true of the people that were baptized today. There came a time in their life when they realized that they were sinners, when they realized they couldn't save themselves, when they realized they were born into sin, and no matter how much good they do in life, it can't outweigh the sin that they've committed in life because God is holy and we are not. But just like there were ways to be born into servitude or slavery, there was also ways to get your freedom. See, one of those ways during this time that you could get your freedom is you could pay it off. You could earn it. You could buy it. It's another way. Here's the third thing. Someone else could pay for it on your behalf and give you your freedom. And isn't that what Jesus has done for us? Isn't that what Jesus offers you right now? If you're sitting here, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Freedom. Because he paid what you couldn't pay. See, Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So my point is this that in this little phrase that so often we want to bypass when we're reading a book saying, oh, that's just introduction, right? When you read books, how many of you just jump past the preface and introduction and ride into the first chapter, right? That's usually me. 
man, we miss something if we don't highlight, man, Paul's in prison. And of all the things that he could have called himself, he says, wait a minute, here's what I understand. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, which means I'm no longer a servant of sin, which means I'm no longer hopeless. But now I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and it's not this idea that, well, I was a slave for this, and now I'm a slave for this. No, no, no. My master is one who loves me. My master is my father. My master is my rescuer. My master is my protector. My master is my provider. He's given me everything that I need to live a life of godliness. That's my master. And what Paul says is he's like, what I want to remind myself of in the midst of my instability, in the midst of these circumstances, is I want to remind myself of of my identity, who I am in Jesus Christ. Because when I remind myself of my identity and who I am, it helps provide me the stability that I need in the midst of rough waters. Look at what it says in verse two. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse three, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Here's what's awesome about verse two. Like, here's another verse that we'd just be like, boop, I'm just passing over it. Let me get down to what I need. And we miss this awesome truth that's found in verses one and two. We miss the assistance that we're given to deal with the anxiety of life. Wait a minute, let me remind myself of my identity, who I am in Jesus Christ, what I've been saved from. But let me also remind myself not only of who I am, but what I've been given. And Paul mentions two things that he's been given, grace and peace. See, when you would tell someone back in this time grace, it was literally a common Greek, meet, Greek greeting. It'd be me like going up to you and saying, hey, how you doing? Even though oftentimes when we ask that, we really, unfortunately, aren't really expecting someone to say how we're doing, how they're doing. But nevertheless, it's a common greeting, right? Same thing. They would say grace. Greeks would say that, but they would not say it in the, which Paul, the, way which, the way in which Paul intended. See, Paul says grace with the true meaning of grace in mind. See, grace, the term, literally means the unmerited favor of God towards you. And what Paul is saying is, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. But what I've been given by God is grace. And so often we think of grace and our default when we think of grace, even though we can know what the scripture says, oftentimes our default and when we think of grace is that it's something that I need to conjure up in order to receive it, that it's based on my piety, that it's, that it's based on the good that I do, it's based on the the list that I have that hopefully I can accomplish that I think are good things. And our default oftentimes wants to drift into grace is something that I earn, but it's actually the antithesis of the definition because grace is unmerited favor by God towards you. In other words, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And what we need to remind ourselves today if we're in the midst of rough waters is we need to remind ourselves of the grace that we've been given by God Almighty, our loving master, our loving father, through our savior, Jesus Christ. 
And some of you maybe are even here today and you've wandered away from him and you would not say that you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, but you would definitely say, man, I have drifted far away from the Lord because my anchor has been dropped in something other than Jesus Christ. And I've drifted far away and I'm even shocked that I'm in this room this morning. But here's what I want you to understand about grace. Grace isn't earned. And you can drift as far from God and still never be too far from his outstretched arm of grace. See, it's this idea that I like to call the gravity of grace. Because the gravity of grace says this, that grace flows from its highest point to the lowest point. So regardless of how far you've been away from God, regardless of whether or not you maybe necessarily can feel it this morning, what you need to remind yourself of is that you have been given the grace of God if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And Romans 5.20 says that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the, all the more. And God's grace is always greater than our sin. See, Paul says, what is giving me stability in the midst of these rough waters? I understand the assistance that I've been given. I understand who I am. I understand what I've been given. He mentions grace, but the next thing that he mentions is peace. So you can't have peace without grace. See, peace is the byproduct of experiencing God's grace. And just like Paul used the greeting that the Greeks would have understood by using the word grace, Paul uses peace which would have been a greeting that the Hebrews would have understood. Because it's that word shalom. Literally means wholeness. That in the midst of my uncertainty, I have been given peace. See, some of you are struggling to live in that today. There's been times that I've struggled to live in that in my own life. But what I have to bring myself back to once again is, wait a minute, what's the assistance that I've been given to deal with the anxiety? Wait a minute, it's my identity in Jesus Christ of what I've been saved from, that if Jesus Christ was powerful enough and perfect enough to save me from my sin, to step into the gap that I could not bridge on my own, no matter how much good that I, that I have done, then let me remind myself that if he was powerful enough and perfect enough to save me from my sin, then he's powerful enough and he's perfect enough to give me the peace that surpasses all understanding, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which we will look at here in a few weeks. And then do you notice in verse 4, look at verse 4. Paul says this, always and in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Doesn't that blow you away? That in the midst of Paul sitting in a prison for something that he did that was obedience to God. Like, I'm in prison because I'm sharing the gospel. I'm not in prison because I robbed a bank. I'm not in prison because I committed some crime. I would deserve that. I'm in prison because I'm doing what God wants me to do. And in the midst of that, he's actually saying, not so much, you just pray for me, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me, though there would be nothing wrong with that. He says, I want you to know I'm praying for you. And did you notice how he says he's praying? He says he's praying with joy. See, when I drop my anchor into the assistance that I've been given by God into my identity, into the grace and peace that God has given me, the supernatural response and result is I experience joy. 
Because joy is not based on circumstances. Joy is based on my relationship with Jesus Christ and my growing and maturing and understanding the assistance that I have through the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, and Almighty God. Here's the second thing that we're given to provide stability, what we need to be anchored to in order to make it to get through the rough waters in life. Number two, it's found in verse six. Look at what it says. Paul says this, I am sure of this. Now, it doesn't mean that Paul wasn't sure of everything else that he just wrote. But what it is doing, it's emphasizing, like, here's what I am holding onto. Here's the thing that I am gripping on. Here's the thing that I've dropped my anchor in. Not only who I am and what I've been given, the grace and peace, but this. I am anchored into a promise that helps me deal with the process of what God is refining in me. He says, I'm sure of this. I'm sure beyond a shadow of a doubt of what? Look at what it says. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm sure of this. There's not a doubt in my mind. I want you to say this phrase with me. I'm going to say it, and then I want you to repeat it with me. This phrase, God finishes what he starts. Say it with me. God finishes what he starts. Is that true of you? Oof. Sadly, it's not always true of me. I love to start new things. I don't know if you have my personality. I love to start new things. And here's what I find out. It's very, I have to be very disciplined to finish the things that I start. You know why that's true of me? Just being transparent with you. I don't know some of you, but I'm going to be transparent. Because I get bored. Start something and get excited about it, and then I tend to have a tendency to get bored with it. And maybe that's true of you, but here's what I think is so awesome is when I look at verse 6, here's what that tells me, knowing how I am versus how God is, that God never gets bored with you. God never gets bored with you. God never gets bored with your foolishness. God never gets bored with your fickleness. God never gets bored with your doubting. Because what he's saying to himself is, wait a minute, the thing that I started in you at your salvation is the thing that I will bring to completion and I always finish what I start. And whatever the rough waters are that you are experiencing in life, whether deserved or undeserved, God is using those things to bring about in you spiritual maturity so that you can grow more and more in your relationship with the Lord. That's James 1. It's producing in us an endurance so that we can be complete for every good work. And what we need to remind ourselves of maybe this morning, maybe it wasn't as much the assistance that I need for the anxiety, but maybe this morning what we need to drop our anchor in more than anything else is that I have been given a promise by God that gets me through the pain of the process of life. Because God always finishes what he started. That's John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. 
and no one's able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. That's Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, which is interesting. A year ago, we were, we were starting Romans chapter 8, walking through that book, and we come to verses 38 and 39, and what does Paul say? I am sure of this. Same language that he uses here in verse 6 of Philippians 1. Listen to what it says. That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul paints every corner to tell you and to tell me that nothing will separate me from God's love, that I've been given a promise that will last, and I need to experience that promise, and I need to allow that promise to preach to the pain of the process so that I can experience the peace and the grace that God wants me to experience in my life. So you can listen to every podcast that I preach, and you can come to every message that I'm up on this stage, but I promise you, you are the preacher that you listen to more than anyone else. And this right here is what we need to be preaching to ourselves. Let me give you the third thing, and we'll be done, and it's found in verses 8 through 11. Not only has the Lord given us assistance to deal with anxiety in verses 1 through 5 and the promise to deal with the process in verse 6, but in verses 8 through 11, what I see that we can drop our anchor in to experience stability in the midst of rough waters is the love that God has given us to deal with the loneliness. Because what I've found in my life, and I know many of you have gone through things that I haven't gone through, is that rough waters can be lonely. And what I love in verses 8 through 11 is that Paul speaks of the love that we've been given by God so that we can deal with the loneliness that rough waters can naturally bring. See, if we're going to experience this love, Paul points to God's love in verse 8 is experienced in community. Look at what he says in verse 8. Listen to the language that speaks to community. He says, for God is my witness. Listen to this. He says, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Like I so long to see you all again. Like, I remember when that church started with Lydia and that servant girl and that Philippian jailer and to see the way that God has grown it. Man, I long to be with you all again. You know what that speaks to? What Paul is remembering as he's in that prison is the love that God has given him through community to help deal with the loneliness. Later on, we're gonna see that he thanks them for the gift that they've even sent him to communicate their love for him. And some of us, man, we come into church and we leave and we wonder why we feel so lonely when there's so many opportunities for us to get involved in community with each other, to join a life group, to get on a service team, whatever it is. But we have to take the initiative to say, wait a minute, let me not blame God for the loneliness that I may be experiencing. Let me realize that, wait a minute, I've been given this community, this body of believers that can help communicate God's love for me in the midst of the loneliness. Paul also points to the idea that God's love, this love to deal with the loneliness is experienced in a growing understanding. Look at what it says in verse nine. He says, it's my prayer that you may, your love may abound more and more with knowledge. 
That word knowledge literally means spiritual knowledge. It's the idea that you're growing more and more and more in your understanding of how much God loves you. And I don't know about you, but what I've found, it's the rough waters, the storms in life that refine me in a way that really nothing else can to help me grow in understanding how much God loves me. And the awesome thing that as we mature in our faith, we can look back to times where we grew in that understanding and say, man, even though I trusted Christ as my Savior here, now I'm here. And the goal is that I can say, man, I understand God's love more here than I did there. Even when I was there, I thought I couldn't understand it anymore. But God, you're growing me in an understanding and appreciation of how much you love me. That was Paul's prayer, that you would abound in growing in this understanding because it's God's love that helps me deal with the loneliness that I need to be anchored into so that I can experience stability in rough waters. Why? Because my stability reveals my maturity. And then he says God's love is experienced through application. Look at verses 9 and 10. He's not just praying that they abound more and more with knowledge, but also discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. See, that word discern is an interesting word. It literally means oven-tested. See, this word discern was actually used in the marketplace because what would happen is fine pottery that was sold in the marketplace was very thin and would easily crack. And when it was made thin by the potter and put into the fire, to be tested, what would oftentimes happen is it would break. But at the end of the day, you had a lot of businessmen that were concerned about the bottom line, and so they didn't want to lose that product. So what they would do is they would take that pottery that may have been broken, and they would put it together, and they would put wax in the cracks, and then they would paint it so that it looked like it wasn't broken. And they would sell that in the marketplace for the same price that an unbroken piece would sell for. But the way that you avoided being tricked is you would take that piece of fine pottery and you would hold it in the light because when you held it in the light, you could see if there were cracks or not. That's the word discernment. And what I see in that and the purpose of that and the application of that is that when I'm growing in the love of God for me, and what it is to me, what I've been given by it, who I am because of it, and I grow in that and I live in obedience to God's word and I'm applying his word to my life, what begins to happen is as I'm growing in my relationship with the Lord, I'm able to say, wait a minute, I'm able to discern a whole lot better than I used to be able to discern what is Satan's counterfix over the real thing. And I don't know about you, but I know in my life, I've dropped my anchor a few times into the counterfeits into the sand, into the things that I was told or chose to believe would give me stability when it sure did not. But as I grow in my relationship more and more, praise God by the grace of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ and God Almighty, I'm able to say, wait a minute, I'm able to discern more what's real from what's fake. I'm able to see what's truly gonna bring me stability in the midst of rough waters. See, that's Paul's prayer for the people at Philippi, because that was something that Paul was learning himself. 
And the result is, as he says there later on in this verse, is in verses 10 and 11, so that you'll be filled with righteousness. So that the fruit of the Spirit will exude from you that's found in Galatians chapter 5. 